Welcome to Realising Your Potential, a leadership podcast from Accolade Wines. Accolade Wines is a leading global wine company with famous wine brands loved and trusted around the world, including Hardy's, St. Hallet, Grand Berge, Banrock Station, House of Arras and Echo Falls. The show was originally recorded for our people as a learning and development tool, but due to popular demand, it is now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and many more. If you would like to contribute, ask questions, or just share some comments, please get in touch with Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Ange Murphy, Chief People and Communications Officer. In this second series, I speak to some fantastic guests from our external networks who share their personal journeys, leadership tips and advice as we continue to build our high-performance culture. In this episode, I speak with executive mentor and coach Claire Salvetti. Claire has spent over 15 years in leadership positions and as CEO of One Green Bean, one of Australia's most progressive and awarded PR agencies. Claire is passionate about learning, developing and growing and becoming the best human she can be. Initially, after dipping into coaching as a side hustle, as she calls it, Claire is now helping others become better leaders and the best versions of themselves. I really enjoyed my conversation with Claire and I hope you do too. So let's get started. Claire Salvetti, thank you so much for joining us on the Realising Your Potential podcast series. I'm very excited to speak to you today. So welcome. Thank you, Ange. I'm very excited to be here. So um, thanks for having me. Claire, we always start off with asking our guests if they could tell us a little bit about themselves, please, and their career to date. I think I'll start in the obvious place. I was born in England a long time ago, 42 years ago, um, but I've lived most of my adult life in Australia. So if people ask me, where are you from? I genuinely can't answer one or the other. Um, I've now moved to Spain. I'm living in Barcelona. I've been here for about a year and a half. Um, so, and I've lived in other places too. So I think, um, you know, that, that comes from a love of adventuring and seeing new places. And if I have to think about where that comes from, um, I think about my grandparents who, my granny grew up in Nepal. My grandpa lived in India. They met in the Himalayas. And it, I don't know, it's a wonderful story of just curiosity and adventure. And I think that's where it comes from for me. Um, when I was a child, I was super shy, like really, really shy. I was the oldest of three. Um, I learned very quickly to be quite self-reliant because mum was running around after two smaller children. Um, I spent a lot of time reading books. I didn't really love talking to people. Um, and the reason I'm telling you that is because I think that's been formative for how my life's rolled out ever since. So when I got to secondary school, I went to a um, I went to an all girls academic sausage machine of a school, and I remember feeling really unremarkable because all of these girls were so smart and really good at sport and and, and I had a terrible haircut and people thought I was a boy for a long time um so I I remember having this I literally remember I was about 13 and I had a look around and I thought this shyness is not going to work very well for you because you don't really you can't really beat them in sports you can't beat them in academia you don't your hair's a bit rubbish. Um, so I, I made quite a conscious decision at that age. I thought, well, I've really got to try and be a bit more outgoing. 
And so that's what I did. I literally went, okay, cool. And then I, I worked, it didn't feel like I worked hard, but I must've worked hard at just being a lot less shy, more outgoing, kind of turned on the entertainer version of me. And I think my dad's a bit of an entertainer. So that's where I got it from. And I, I noticed this transformation of how people responded to me and where my place in the classroom and in the world became. And I think that's where my real curiosity about dynamics of humans came, um, seeing how you can turn up differently and have a very different life experience. Although I'm kind of, I'm, I'm analyzing myself now as a grown up rather than thinking about that as a, as a teenager, I was probably more thinking, oh, does this mean I can kiss lots more boys now that I'm more outgoing? Um, so when my when I turned 15, my mum and dad divorced, um, but they handled it really well, I thought, um, because we all turned out OK. Um, and it showed me that the kind of complexity that life can bring doesn't really mean it, life has to be a mess um, if you sort of manage yourself well and have the right conversations. Um, so that was the big learning. Um, and. You know, when I look at my mum and dad, they've been a massive influence on me in my life. Um, I take my love of music and inappropriate jokes from my dad um, and my curiosity of people from my mum. And, and, and that's kind of shaped the young adult version of me. Um, when my mum retired, actually, a few years ago, she did lots of things like she bought a kayak and she started climbing mountains. Um, so a, a really massive adventurous streak of her came out. Um, so she showed me that life can stay exciting for as long as you want it to be, um, which has been a great life lesson for me. And that's helped to mold me into who I am. Um, I married my wife, Nick, in 2015. Um, she was the first female relationship I had. Um, and, and, and that really taught me about um, the ability and the delight of surprising yourself, you know, mm. even when you're a fully formed adult. Um, so I've always, I kind of feel like I've, I've always got that capacity to surprise myself still if I dig deep enough to really kind of listen to myself and work out what's going on. And then I had my beautiful daughter, Ruby, in 2016, um, who has very quickly become my biggest teacher she you know it, um, ch wow childbirth children are a miracle in life and I have learned so much about myself and her in the process of having her and she's made me more courageous um, she has made me very very pointed about you know wanting to be a role model for her and doing the right thing in life to help her understand how we need to all contribute to this life mm -hmm. that we're in. So you asked me a, a little bit about myself. That's kind of, I've probably done a few big reveals in there, but all of those things I feel are the biggest kind of story points to me being who I am today. It's a, it's a lovely story. And there's a couple of questions that come to mind when I listen to you. Do you still identify as being someone who is shy? Because, you know, I'm, I'm quite introverted. So even reaching out and doing this series, two of these podcasts was an incredibly terrifying experience for me. But like you, I've learned lots about impact I've had on people that I've met during the course of my career that I didn't really know that I had, you know, and people are giving back generously to participate. But are you still, are you still deeply shy or do you think you've overcome that? It's a great question, Ange. And firstly, good on you for like putting yourself out there and, and in the arena, as Brene Brown would say, and, you know, trying something that doesn't make you feel very comfortable because it's extraordinary 
how we can evolve by putting ourselves in, in, in situations that we wouldn't have previously imagined. You know, when you hear about famous actors and actresses, like Rowan Atkinson apparently is incredibly shy. And so I, I do believe that you can be a performer whilst also being very shy or an introvert. And I think what I've probably got good at over the years because my work's required me to be is I can switch on. You know, rather than thinking I'm always on, I'm absolutely not always on. At work, I, I can see things much more clearly around when I need to perform and when I don't need to perform. Um, and so, you know, as when I was a CEO, of course, there's you're required to stand up in front of lots of people. You're required to go on TV sometimes. And I, I literally go, okay, now, now this is the moment to perform. And I, I can do it very seamlessly and I don't really get nervous by performing anymore. So it's definitely a state that I find myself in rather than something that I feel I need to do. And when I stop performing, you know, I'm not someone that needs lots of attention. In fact, if people give me attention, I'm a bit like a disco ball reflecting it away and kind of like, don't talk about it. No, I don't need to know that. Thank you very much. But I think it's, you know, the thing that I'm conscious of is not necessarily judging myself to be something or something else or anything in between, but just to notice and observe what is happening to me in any moment in time. And they're great tips. And this is, you know, a podcast we've developed for particularly leaders. Yes. And I think that point that you make around being able to turn it on or turn it off or dip into different various styles and you know when to use which you need to use is kind of the, the good thing. Let's talk a little bit about your professional career. So you've held a number of really senior roles in marketing and communication agencies. What did you learn um, about yourself and in those roles? Learning's every day for me um, and, and learning's one of my values. And so, you know, I, I, I seek the learning, I seek feedback. And um, one of my favourite questions to ask and I think, you know, all of anyone that I coach will be very familiar with this question um, is what am I more aware of now? And so it's a question I ask myself at the end of I used to ask myself at the end of meetings. I asked, used to ask, you know, people, you know, my team after we'd been in, you know, a pitch or a client meeting. It's like, what are we more aware of now? Um, because what it does is it shows incremental learning. You know, if you are, Ange, at the, are at the end of this podcast, you think, what am I more aware of now? Not necessarily about what I've said and if I've said anything brilliantly useful, but more like, what do I know about myself? You know, you've learned through the process of this podcast um, that you can be comfortable in doing something like this. And so what am I more aware of now is a kind of indicator that tells me that learning is very incremental and always on. So that's the big learning I think I've got from leadership that I've able, you know, that's super relevant for me as a coach. Um, more specifically, actual learnings. Um, I think, you know, leadership is something that some people are bestowed with leadership. Um, but I, I, I believe that, you know, good leadership, effective leadership comes from the ability to influence others you know socially influence um, you can't lead yourself you've got to lead more than yourself a group of people and um, you need to be able to influence them to get on your agenda and achieve the goals that you need to achieve as the leader um, so some people come and think that a title gives them 
automatic leadership skills. Like I am the CEO, therefore I can make stuff happen and I can be excellent. But what that is, is more of assumption that you've got the authority to do and tell people to do stuff, you know, or you've been just suddenly given power. And, and, and I just don't think that's true. So for me, leadership is, is very much about understanding who your people are, the people on your team, however big it is, what motivates them, um, what they care about, because you need to work together with them to move forwards. So that means for me, as a leader, you really are only as good as the people you're leading. Mm. You know, you really are only only as good as the team that you are together. So when I think of myself as a leader, you know, if I visualize it, it was almost like um, it felt like I was from behind, kind of if we had a goal of you know, getting up to the top of a hill, I was the one kind of rallying. So I was behind them. I was with them. I was in the middle. Sometimes I needed to be in front because we couldn't tell, you know, where, where to go next. And it required me to step out in front and show them. But it's very much like if you saw us as a group of people, I probably, you know, I didn't have a crown on. You wouldn't be able to go, there is the leader. I, or that was what I was trying to do. It was very much about me being within the group of people that I was leading and helping all of us to get where we needed to go. You said that you really um, like and you seek out feedback. I don't think we naturally open to feedback. So, so how is that? How have you come to that place? Um, I'm not going to pretend that I don't worry about getting feedback or don't take it personally because I am not immune to that at all. People can be very open to feedback and very closed. Most of the time, they, there's trepidation um, with receiving feedback. I think what, what feedback is for me is a stepping stone on my quest to be a better human. And I'm not sure yet what um, my legacy will be entirely by the end of my life. And I think a lot about that, but what I do know for sure is that I want to be better than I am now because I want to be able to contribute more to the world. And so I do lots of self-reflection and, 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 and that's very helpful. So I give myself feedback. Um, but what I tend to do is I, I kind of, um, as part of a coaching process, what you're doing is encouraging people to be more on the balcony of their own life. So it's about being able to kind of observe what's going on for you in a given situation. And so when in the process of receiving feedback, what I try to do is remove myself from the emotion of it. And so, you know, there's a really great expression of... Um, I was having an emotion, so I was I was feeling tired or I was feeling sad versus I was had by an emotion, which is I was sad and I was tired, which is tied in with your identity. So I'm kind of aware that feedback can be quite triggering um, and it can make you go into that kind of spiral of, oh, God, I'm not good enough and I'm rubbish and, you know, and then you stop hearing. So what I try to do when I know that feedback is on its way to me and it's always nice to be given um, the opportunity to know it's incoming <laughs> or to ask for it. What I do is kind of take a moment to, it's about mindfulness really, and think, okay, cool. Well, what might come is likely to be unexpected and I might not have heard it before. And it might be, you know, something that's, that kind of stings a bit. So what I'm going to do is take a breath and try and 
remove myself from my emotions in hearing it and actually really hear the words and then I will deal with the emotions later and so it puts me in a kind of um just a more mindful thoughtful non-judgmental curious space Mm. and I'm very aware that you know when we are having a conversation the whole conversation is heard through our own frame of reference. Mm. So that's the beliefs we have, the assumptions we have, the stories we tell ourselves, the life experiences we've had. And so if someone is giving me feedback, then I will weave it into what I already know about myself rather than really try and hear it from them and think, gosh, this is super interesting. Like if someone tells you a fact about life, you don't, you don't attach it to yourself necessarily. Whereas the feedback, it's very quick to attach it and stuff it down into those, you know, nasty places where you're not good enough. And so I kind of try and leave it into the space in the middle, which is a curiosity and think, I wonder, you know, where this has come from so that I'm able to kind of ask more questions about it and really understand why this feedback is kind of heading my way. You know, I think it's, it's a really hard thing to do to receive feedback well. Yes. And I don't always do it well. I mean, one of the tools that I've learned over the course of my career for both giving and receiving feedback is I just like to sit with it for a little while. And that could be 12 or 24 hours. So take the emotion out of it and kind of write down, you know, what I really want to convey or what I heard. And then I think you talk, you, you, you mentioned, you know, about the story you tell yourself. And I think there's a, someone smarter than me actually said once, is the story you're telling yourself actually helpful? And I think it's a really good reflection question, yeah, that when you receive feedback and you put your version of the story on it, is that actually being helpful and to step back from it? When you receive it, you choose, you know, you have choices to make about it. Do I accept it? Do I not accept it? If I accept it, what am I going to do with it? So, uh, you know, it would, I'd love to meet someone who can just do all that automatically. That, that is incredible. But, you know, it's a, it's a mental process to receive, to process, then to choose how to respond you know and that can take I mean I've I've no I've had feedback before that I didn't necessarily accept but it got stuck somewhere you know in my belief system and and my and my memory and then you know it will be a long like years later where I almost like can see it myself Mm. you know and you go oh oh so when that person said that back in 1984 that's like, I see that now and now I'm ready. Now I'm, now I'm grown up enough to really see that and work with it. What for you is the most important thing about being a leader? I think having clarity on what you're there to do, really. And, and, and I think finding a way to buy into that because, you know, the big leadership roles in the world come with conflict sometimes, you know, you might work for a brand that you love, but some of the ethical practices aren't where they need to be, or the sustainability isn't as, you know, involved as you hope. Um, And so being there and understanding your role, and then understanding how your value set aligns with the goals that you have, and being peaceful and motivated about that is super important, first of all, and you can there are times when you need to work hard on that. Um, and then coupled with that is 
I think it's what I talked about earlier. It's a commitment to being your best self. And that kind of, I suppose that more officially is, it's similar to a concept of authentic leadership um, because, you know, the leader's on the journey as well. And so for you to be excellent, to be your very best in that role, you need to be committing to growing yourself in that role too. So that is very much about, um, you know, having the ability to see yourself well in that role, to accept the feedback, to change and grow as the role changes and grows. Um, and, you know, the, the other part of leadership we talked about earlier is all the people that need to come with you to do that. Mm. So you've got to be the kind of person that people want to follow. Humans, I think, respond well to authenticity. Mm. Yeah, and and the interesting thing about authenticity is that some people use it as an excuse to be a bit of a jerk. You know, it's like, well, I'm just turning up and being myself here. So suck it up, losers. And, and that's not the point of being authentic. Being authentic is about seeing yourself, like really seeing yourself and understanding that, you know, there's good bits and there's bits that probably need a bit of work and to be open to um, digging into the stuff that needs work and to be open to celebrating the stuff that that, that you do do well. Um, and, and that for me is authentic and great leadership. I've talked previously with many people I've interviewed and it comes up about vulnerability and showing vulnerability as a leader as well. I mean, what's your view on that? Vulnerability is such an interesting construct, really. I think that, you know, I'm a massive fan of Brene Brown and everything she does. I think she's an absolute rock star. So um, I think that vulnerability has to come hand in hand with courage. It's kind of, you know, one and the same almost. Um, but it is interesting because I, I'm, you know, to be completely transparent, I think there is still a risk sometimes with turning up and being vulnerable because not everyone knows Brene. You know, I still talk to people at coaching and they haven't heard of her. And, you know, I, because she's, um, I think she's so amazing. I find it hard to believe that people haven't, but of course they haven't, you know, she's a researcher. <laughs> so why should they have heard about her? Um, so I'm, I'm mindful. I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday about this, about vulnerability. And I think there's different ways that you can be vulnerable. So for example, um, you can be very vulnerable internally. And I think that's amazing. So being vulnerable internally for me means that you are, um, you know, constantly working hard to make yourself better you're getting the feedback you're working it out you are dealing with your self-limiting beliefs you're aware of your self-limiting beliefs and when you're in a situation you can notice them that for me is internal vulnerability and it's going okay I've got a bit of a one of my self-beliefs one of a very popular um self-limiting belief is I'm not good enough right there's a lot of people that think that and it's the label that they wear and that they gave themselves a long time ago and so for me internal vulnerability would be when you're in a tough situation, it would be to know that you have that label, that you think that about yourself and to recognize it internally and think, now this is a moment where that little nasty little belief comes up, I'm not good enough, and that can impact how I then behave. And you can do that all internally without anyone knowing that you're having that internal conversation mm. and being vulnerable with yourself. There's the other type of vulnerability that is just doing that publicly. Mm. And you know what? 
I, I see it to, 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 to great success when leaders are vulnerable. Um, but if they're talking to an audience who isn't used to it or not really ready for it, um, it can make people question, you know, like, why is this person sharing this thing? You know, oh my goodness, my leader thinks that they, um, you know, sometimes don't know what they're doing. Oh my gosh, what does that mean for our business? Is our business safe in their hands, you know? So I think, I think vulnerability is super, super, it's essential for humans, but how and when you choose to use it and share it is really, really important. And it would be great to be in a world where everyone's comfortable talking about it and we can all share it, but I don't think we're there yet. And I think there's some cultures that are better at it than others. Um, but I would definitely be trying to read the room before I did any big reveals. Mm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, vulnerability within yourself every day is essential, I think, for growth. And a lot of that too ties into a concept we've talked to a lot on these podcasts around psychological safety. And as a leader with my team, how do I create that psychological safety? Because there's a difference to being vulnerable in front of a 500 people as a, you know, but you can actually be quite vulnerable in front of your individual team or your smaller team. Yeah. But that takes work in terms of how to create that space. Yes. Um, I'm really um, happy that psychological safety has come up so much in your podcast because it's a, I mean, it's quite a technical term and people sometimes go, oh God, like, wow, that's a big word. Um, but it is, it is the number one thing that people need. Like right. it's, you know, it's at that apps, it's a base need that people um, have to have in order to function. And, and so often we can't recognize when we feel safe or not safe. It's super, super important for people to be able to label when they are not feeling safe and mm. then try to work through what is causing them to not feel safe. What advice would you give to those leading teams today or those wanting to become leaders? Your leading teams today welcome the feedback you know, and take everything we've talked about previously around feedback, because that is important. And just notice, like try to stay in that really kind of mindful, observational, curious space about what you notice and notice the stories you tell yourself that might not be serving everyone else. Um, for people wanting to become a leader one day, what I would say is if you want to become a leader, then I think you probably are already leading in mm. some way. And um, people often wait till they get given a title or a job description with leadership in it in order to see themselves as a leader. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make in the world. Leadership can start from the youngest, youngest age. It doesn't have to be at work. It can be in a community. It can be in a family. It can be in a value set. Um, so just, you know, see yourself as a leader and behave as a leader if that's what you think is important. And you can never start early enough I think in understanding how to lead well the executive coaches are often given to people when they've spent 20 years leading and suddenly you're having to you know course correct things even if they're the most exceptional leaders and one of my points of view is coaching should be available when people are emerging into leadership mm. in business so you know probably in their sort of mid-20s because that's where you can really catch them early and, and create amazing humans that don't need as much course correcting later yeah we're very happy to invest in a personal coach to help us with our fitness but we're not as open to investing in a personal coach to help us with our work like I don't know if that's your experience I do get quite a few people um, saying to me uh, when I, you know, tell them I'm an executive coach and they say, um, 
you know, well, I don't need one. I'm, I actually had someone who shall remain nameless said to me, um, um, well, I, I don't really understand um, why executive coach, coaches need to exist because um, when I was a CEO, I learned everything I could possibly learn from my boss. And so when I was a CEO, I'd learned everything. And I just, I find it extraordinary because how can you possibly know everything? Like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's the truth about life. And, and I think people see it as a weakness often. Whereas actually the truth is that the, 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 the more willing we are to dig around in who we are um, means that we are more courageous because it's the hardest thing to do. And what was it? So you were CEO of a great ad agencies, working in marketing, working with amazing brands, and then you've transitioned to becoming an executive coach. What was it that made you passionate and more? Because you're really passionate about it as well. So what made you change career? I'm not going to pretend it was an overnight thing. So um, about 12 years ago, I was gifted an executive coach by a former boss who I will remain eternally grateful to. And um, in my first session with that executive coach, who who was amazing, her name was Kate Hosey. She, I literally, I got all these goosebumps. And at the end of the session, I said, Kate, I want to do what you're doing. This is what I should be doing. And I said, does everyone think that? And she said, no, not many people think that, but if you want help in knowing how to get there, I can help you. And so it was 12 years ago that I started the journey and I started training and practicing and I did, it was a side hustle a long time because my job was always very, very important to me in, in the comms and creative um, agency space. Um, but what it actually did was caused me to think a lot more about myself, have a lot of coaching, learn about myself. And through that process, I realized that I had this purpose, which was around um, kind of um, inspiring and influencing people to be the version of themselves that they didn't know they could be. Because I have a belief that everyone thinks they can get to a certain point, but actually everyone is kind of limitless in where they could get to if they have the right support and the right sort of own self-belief um, and so when I got that purpose it just ignited this feeling of wanting to do that for my whole life but the interesting thing is that it actually made me much more committed to being a CEO or an MD or whatever job I was doing because firstly I had a choice and I thought every whenever I get Jack at this job I'm going to go and do coaching but more importantly it gave me um, a very I was very singular and focused on the kind of leader I wanted to be, which was that authentic self-aware leader. So it made me much better at my leadership job. And then knowing that I was going to be a coach one day and ideally for executives made me think, well, you know, the longer I can be in leadership, the better coach I will be because I'll have experienced the things that I will be coaching one day. So it actually meant that I stayed 10 more years doing that sort of leadership role and um, my transition only truly happened when we had this move to Spain and my wife Nick actually was an amazing coach to me and she she got headhunted for a big role here and she said how are you going to make this work for you Claire and I was being quite casual and laid back about it and she said no really what do you want to do really what do you want to do with this and I said I really I think it's time now that I I've been talking for a good game on coaching for 10 years, 12 years. I think I, I think it's time I kind of put my money where my mouth is. And, um, and then I went through a process and made it happen. We talked about putting yourself out there, uh, but moving from paid employment, leading large organisations to actually then being solely responsible for your own career and profile, was that, was that scary? It was in a, um, you know, that what was scary was, um, you know, if the success 
would be on my head, you know, so if it didn't go well, then there was a risk of me um, feeling like a failure. And I think that was the scariest bit. Um, but because I, 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 I have never had as much conviction in myself and about my place in the world as when I understood my purpose and how I could contribute to the world. So it also felt like the only thing that I could do. Mm. And I'm not saying so the, the interesting thing is, right, like with this purpose to, you know, support people to be the version of themselves that they didn't know, there's different expressions of that. As a CEO, I was doing that. And as a coach, I'm doing that. But it doesn't mean that this is what I'm going to do forever, because there may be another expression of that in the future that I haven't thought about yet. Mm. So it's just given me a really clear direction of where I need to be going in life. And there'll be different ways that that can be executed. Did that purpose come through your coaching that you had? I mean, I think it was 18 months of not obviously constant because I've had lots of things on, but it was a process of um, understanding seeking to understand myself. I think a good place to start is understanding what's what you care about most, which are your values, right? And there's, I've got a great values worksheet um, that I give to people I work with. Brené Brown's got a good one, but there's an exercise where you go through what, what your values are and your values are your highest order goals. So they are the thing, they are the things that are most important to you in life. And everyone has them and most people are often living them, but they're just not really crystal clear or can't articulate them. Um, but what can happen is if you're not clear on them is you can make decisions based on money. Um, you can make decisions based on ease, familiarity, um, practicality, and, and that can kind of set you off course for a bit. So I, I got my values, which can change, but they're, they're pretty well set. I understood them first. And when I looked at them, I then spent, you know, this long process of just mulling over, well, with these values, then what am I here to do? What do I get out of bed for? What do I care about? The fact that I was working in leadership positions in an agency meant every day I could just watch myself. Where did I, what did I gravitate towards? What did I not like as much? You know, I definitely didn't like, you know, the P&L and trying to make money. Um, but I, 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 I gravitated towards helping people be the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, quite simply, that's what I did. And, you know, that was what I took absolute joy in. And I say, I, I do it for free. I, I, I do pro bono coaching quite a lot because I love it. I just love doing it. And so it crystallized by focusing on asking myself, like, what am I here to do? What, why do I get out of bed in the morning when I've had a great day? What did I do that day? You know, and over time, it just kind of became this thing. You know, is it the purpose that I'll still be talking about when I'm 112? I don't know, but right now it's serving me. So I'm going with it. I like that question about at the end of the day or when I get it, what, what excited me about the day? Yeah, what got me excited? What was I most passionate and engaged about? And there's sometimes the, the, you can see a repeated pattern sometimes, I think. Uh, Paul Mitchell, who is an amazing um, uh, systemic coach, he says that coaching is about being a pattern recognition expert. And I believe that, like coaches look for patterns. So we don't listen to the content as much as what we hear for. We look for other patterns in people's behaviors and thoughts and feelings. And so that's the one thing you can do as a human. You can look at the patterns in your life and see what that is telling you about yourself. Don't worry about the content, the data points. It's more about going overall over this week. What did I like? What did I not like? Because that gives you a really clear understanding of where your energy goes and what matters most to you. Can you talk to us about imposter syndrome, what it is? 
Have you experienced it? And what do we do? Um, so I am not an expert in imposter syndrome. Um, just to caveat it, there's people that are much more experienced at it than I am in terms of talking about it. So I'll keep it quite top line. So it's kind of, it's loosely defined as doubting your abilities when you have abilities and feeling like a fraud. And it, it specifically affects high achieving people um, who find it difficult to to accept their accomplishments and achievements. And it was originally, the research was originally done, I think in the late seventies on females. And so it's been, um, it's kind of related more to females. Um, And so if you ever feel like you say things to yourself like, or others like, you know, when you do something well and then you answer with, oh, I'm just lucky. Or, um, oh, if I can do it, anyone can. Or, well, actually I had a lot of help. Um, or if someone says something nice, you just think, oh, they're just being nice to me. Those are all kind of indicators that you might be feeling imposter syndrome. Um, What I find interesting about it actually, and it's something I read recently, is that um, imposter syndrome, because it was focused on women, um, sometimes the systems that we are working and living in aren't set up for us to be up, for us to be our best. And so sometimes the imposter syndrome is less about the human feeling inadequate and more about the system making us feel inadequate. And I think that's really, really interesting. So for example, if there is a woman um, who is working in a very, very male dominated company or industry, she might be feeling imposter syndrome, but surely it's the responsibility of the industry to not be so male dominated. And therefore the problem isn't with the human, it's with the kind of system around them. So I like that, that's a new build for me on imposter syndrome, but still nevertheless, a lot of people feel like they're imposters. Um, I have an amazing supervisor called Dr. Sylvia Benjamin, who makes me better at my coaching. And I was talking to her about my experiences of imposter syndrome, which were very real when I transitioned into coaching, because I think I said to her one day, like I'm coaching CEOs and I haven't been coaching that long. And, and so that for her was a sign of imposter syndrome. And she said to me, what if you can, every time you get this feeling that you're of imposter syndrome, that you can reframe it as a sign that you have taken on a challenging goal. And you take on challenging goals because you can do hard things because you have a track record for doing hard things and achieving them. So this is just another sign that you've chosen to take on a challenging goal and you will achieve it. And I thought that was brilliant because most of the time we focus on like squashing down the the voices of imposter syndrome and actually seeing it as um, a, a little mental sign that yes, it's a challenging goal and yes, you feel a bit wobbly, but you've done this before and you will do it again and you can achieve. So go on, keep doing it. And that for me literally has transformed me and my experience of the the little niggly doubts. And how do you manage your nerves? Because that's something I think we all experience, whether it's giving a presentation in the workplace or having to get up and say something or opportunities will arise in certain points of your career, as you know, where you're asked to go and do conferences and public speak they're generally nerve-wracking experiences for most of us how did you manage your nerves um you know having to do a lot of public speaking I, I worked out over the years that if you turn up 
and rock it. Like if you just turn up, you own it, you look like you're having fun. People care less about the content than they do about watching you have fun, right? You know, if you watch someone get up and they're all nervous and they're like, oh, and their voice breaks and you immediately go into that compassionate space of, oh my God, that poor person, how, like what's going to happen to them? Like, are they going to make it? Are they going to fluff it? And then you watch out for the fluffs. Whereas if you watch someone that just is an excellent entertainer and performer you don't even think that you go they've got this and I am just going to enjoy the ride and so I've always remembered that and I just think as long as I look like I'm enjoying it no one else needs to know that it's nerve-wracking and once you put that out there you start believing it you just start believing it well see I visualize that I'm wearing a really heavy winter coat and then I take the coat off and in my brain that means that all the nerves and all the anxiety is actually left on the coat. So I literally visualize taking a coat off and leaving it on the chair. So when I walk up on stage, any of those, that story that I'm telling myself that I'm going to be stupid, I'm going to forget my words, I'm going to go red, all those things you tell yourself, that's with the coat and that's not with me. That's really excellent. I'm going to remember that. Thanks, Anne. You know, for you, Claire, what do you do? How do you keep yourself, I suppose, mentally fit? So I um, I take um, a lot of guidance from the um, kind of sports performance world because they've done a lot of a lot of research around like how to get peak performances. And I know you would have spoken to people that are not much more knowledgeable than I am. But the number one thing they do is they really actively incorporate rest and recovery into their training. And so um, I find it interesting in the corporate world, rest and recovery is often seen as a weakness. So I'm very mindful about rest and recovery. I think that's really, really important for me personally. Personally, I've got a, um, a, a yoga habit, actually, that has um, really um, gone up in pace since I arrived in Barcelona because I love it because it is it's a stretch, but it's also mindfulness and just about being in the moment. And the thing it's taught me most, um, which I've just reflected on recently, that I get most joy in is the incremental learning of it. Like, you know, to your point earlier, you don't rock into a yoga studio and then can just be a pretzel. Like it takes an enormous hours, hundreds of hours to improve, you know, from going to not being able to do a handstand to doing a handstand. And I love the idea that, you know, day to day, I get no improvement, but over a month, I might see a tiny bit. And so that is just, that makes me feel good. I also have... Um, I'm aware, I know that mindfulness is probably the single biggest, most useful thing for anyone to do. And I think I do it pretty well in the day-to-day of just being mindful of my actions. But in terms of meditation, um, when I meditate, I am a better human and I'm not meditating at the moment. And so that is my, you know, it's a disclaimer because I find it hard, Mm. but it's a great practice and it really, really helps. Are you a podcast fan and what would you recommend? Yes. Okay. Um, so I, I love podcasts because when I'm not yogaring, I try, I, I, I do a lot of walking because it's where I learn stuff. And because I've, I've given up on books because I don't get a chance to sit down and read them. So I just like, I incorporate learning into what I'm already doing in my active stuff. Um, so I've, I've talked about Brene because she is the rock star, um, Dare to Lead and Unlocking Us. D- Unlocking Us is a brilliant podcast that she's brought out. Glennon Doyle has got a new one around We Can Do Hard Things. Haven't heard it yet, but it's on my list. Um, One of my absolute favourites is a lady called Esther Perel. I just, I find her, um, like, I just, uh, I admire her ability to very quickly see the truth. 
um, of that per that person's truth, not the ultimate big truth. It's called Where Do We Begin? Um, and she did it for couples. And then very interestingly, she did one on the corporate relationships. So like creative directors working together, mother and son who are in business together. Wow. So if you look up Esther Perel, she has this great business one, which is just fascinating. Claire, thank you so much. It's been just so delightful. I could have talked to you for ages. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, that brings an end to my conversation with Claire. There were some really great messages in that conversation. And for me, the things I'm going to think about are, it's extraordinary how we can evolve if we put ourselves in situations we're just not comfortable with. Life can get a bit messy, but it doesn't have to be if we handle it well. Being open to feedback is a stepping stone to becoming a better human. And as a leader, commit to being your best self. Accept the feedback which will enable you to change and grow. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found it interesting and it sparked your curiosity to find out more. We have plenty of materials and resources to support this episode, so remember to check the show notes. For more leadership content, subscribe to the podcast and follow Accolade Wines on LinkedIn. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. Your Potential.